The parable I want to share today, as I shared, is the parable of the prodigal son. But it's a whole lot more than just about one of the sons in this story. And my belief is that this story is the gospel of the gospels, which just simply means it's the good news of the good news. It's the center of everything. And for me, it's become the clearest picture of who God the Father is. And I think over the next 30 minutes that what I'm about to share will be one of the most important messages that I'll share as your preacher. Because it recenters our, our, our picture, our lens on who the Father is in the words of Jesus, the Son. I truly wish that this picture, this story, would have been the center of the American Christianity and its imagination. But it is not the center of the American church's imagination. The center of the American imagination of who God is was developed most clearly in a sermon that was preached on July 8th. 1741, by a revival preacher that many of you have heard of. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And the title of that sermon was one that probably you know exactly, those of you who know anything about Jonathan Edwards, it was the sermon that was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a Puritan classic, and it's an American uh, greatest hit, and it shaped our understanding of God more centrally than any other sermon probably in our country's history. And in the sermon, basically, Edwards eloquently scares people into heaven. It's, uh, I guess I'd call it evangelism by terrorism, right? Conversion by coercion. Probably the most famous part of this sermon, just to give you a taste of this, comes at a part where he describes an image of a spider that's hanging over a fire. I want to read part of that sermon to you. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his sight as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Isn't that wonderful? God depicted as a sadistic juvenile dangling spiders over a fire. And today my goal is to convince you that that sermon is rubbish. That it's heresy. A heretical sermon that shaped our imaginations more than the story that Jesus tells about who the Father is. So today I hope to give you the clearest picture I possibly can of the God that Jesus gave us a picture of while he was on the earth. This is a great story, and this is a true story. Let's pray as we open our eyes to this story. God, we, uh, we thank you for the story that Jesus told about two sons and a father. And I pray today that as we've been formed in so many different churches and experiences and out of pain and out of a sense of loss and out of questions of who you are, I pray today that you would drill down into all those expectations and the stories that we tell to give us as accurate a picture of who you are as you possibly can. So God, today, whatever I say that is true, that connects to what your spirit is doing in the life of humans on earth still today, I pray that you would cause those things to stick and to be remembered. God, if there's anything I say today that's not true of who you are, I pray that those things would fall away not to be remembered. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen. 
The story you tell about God matters. And the story you tell about yourself in relation to God matters. And today, what I want to do is I want to challenge the stories we've been telling about God and the stories that we've been telling about how God sees us. Before I read the story in Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open there this morning. I want to set this in context because this is the third of three stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. The first of those stories we talked about last week, it's the story about a lost sheep. There's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, one wanders off and he goes to find that sheep and he brings it back home on his shoulders and, and he celebrates with the rest of the community when it's found. And then a story Jesus tells is about a woman who has 10 coins and And one of those coins gets lost, and so she sweeps the house clean. She finds that coin, and she celebrates with those in her community. And now the third story Jesus tells, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I want you to hear this morning exactly what this younger son is saying, because in that culture, it was even more surprising than maybe how we receive it. When he is asking his father for his part of the inheritance, what he is actually saying is, because a father in that day would not have given the inheritance until that father had passed, then it would go on. What he's basically saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me my money so I can be done with you. Now, that should be a shocking thing to us, but in our culture, unfortunately, we have such disrespect when it comes to elders and parents that this might be a a phrase you would hear uttered, maybe at a restaurant. Maybe you've heard this even painfully from your own kids. But in that culture, this was unheard of. This is a patriarchal Middle Eastern culture. You don't say that about your parents. But nevertheless, the father grants this request. It's so surprising. Hands over this inheritance, and you can imagine the story doesn't get any better from there, right? Let's keep reading Luke 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I I will set out, go back to my father, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. There's no shock here, right? The son blows his money. He winds up in trouble. He ends up in a field, which is an interesting line. I want you to remember that word. He's in a field, right? He's feeding pigs. Now, uh, when it comes to this whole pig business, we know that these are unclean animals, right? And so this is a massive step downward for this guy to take. It's not just that he's lost all that he has. He's willing to do anything, even go work with, well, people that wouldn't be good Jewish people. He's working with the pigs and he's so hungry. He's, he longs. He, you've never been there, right? He longs to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs, pigs eat. Maybe you have been in a situation like this. You know what that longing is, that desire to have nourishment of some kind. And then he comes to a moment of clarity. The text says that he, when he came to his senses, and he hatches a plan as he's sitting among those pigs. He realizes, you know, back home, there were sons, but there were also servants and slaves. 
And if I could just go back and I get hired by dad to be a servant, then maybe I could at least have food. It would be a better situation than I'm in now. So he begins that journey back home. And some of you have been in that position where you've had to, you've done something and you had to tell your parents about it, right? Or maybe you've been on the side of the parents on this. Or maybe you, uh, you, uh, you wrecked a car and you had to tell the story to your parents. Or, but maybe some of you, you've actually been that son who's just kind of wandered off and you've had to come home. Or maybe you've been through the steps and you've had to make amends. And if you've ever been in that position, you know how you, you kind of come up with the words you're going to say for that speech to seek forgiveness. Kind of run it over and over again and you imagine that scene in your head. And this son has done exactly that. And part of his speech is this. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, we each have a story that we tell ourselves about our own worth. You with me this morning? We all have this tape that runs in our head about who we are, about what our worth is, about what our dignity is, and it it ebbs and flows in some ways throughout our lives, but some of us really have a negative self-perception of things. Some of it, it's accurate sometimes. So we beat ourselves up, For others of us, we have a bloated ego, let's be honest, right? And the tape that runs is a little different sounding, right? We know how good we really are, and we let everyone else around us know it. But we all have a story that we tell ourselves. When a son gets home, he's rehearsed this speech. He's rehearsed this story, and he's ready to give it to the father. But before he can even get a word out, listen and watch what happens. Luke 15, verse 20, the second half. But while he was a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's a remarkable scene. And if you would just let this scene rework whatever story you've told about who God the Father is, it will change your life. It's changed mine because the truth is Jonathan Edwards was wrong. The father in this story wasn't storing up anger. The father wasn't preparing a fire so he could dangle his son like a spider over that fire. The father isn't isn't abominable. He doesn't see the son as abominable. That's not who this son is. The father has been worried sick over his son. And he's been rehearsing a scene in his own mind about one day where that son might return home. And he's been looking out at that road. And finally, the thing he dreamed of actually happens in this moment. And the story says the father was filled not with anger or rage or abhorring his son or that he sees him as an abomination. What he sees is Well, he's filled with compassion. But that doesn't deter the son from beginning his rehearsed speech. And so he says exactly what he's been running over his head. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the next line he had rehearsed was, make me like one of your hired servants. Before he can get that word out, the father breaks in and tells the story he's been waiting to tell. The father interrupts him before he can make his pitch, and he says, put a robe on that boy. Put a ring on his finger. All of this are signs of of sonship, signs that this boy belongs. So the story that, that he's been telling himself is, I'm no longer worthy to be called this guy's son. 
But the father has a different story he tells about him. The father's story is this son, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And the father, you see, has a different narrative than the son does about the truth. In the father's eyes, it's that's my boy. And he's come home. So here's the question this morning. We all have stories in our head going around. And this sermon and this passage this morning is going to challenge some of the stories we've been believing. So are you going to trust your story? Or are you going to trust the story that Jesus tells about who the Father is? Do I trust my story that, well, I'm no longer worthy to be God's son because of what I've done? Or am I willing to trust the God's version, the Father's version? That This is my boy. Put a robe on him. Kill the fattened calf. We've got to celebrate because he's alive and we thought he was dead. Does he cling to his version of the story? Or is he going to give up on that and cling to a new version of the story? But there's another son in this story, if you want. The other son has stories playing in his head as well about who he is and who the father is. Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Isn't that interesting? There's that detail again. Remember, the, the, the younger son was in the field eating you know, longing to eat the pods the pigs ate. He's lost. We know that. Sometimes we forget that this older son is just as lost as the younger son is. That symbol about a field is he's somewhere else. And the same thing happens in this story. The father comes to him, we read later in this story. Let's, let's read on actually what happens. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. That is a party if you can hear not just the music, but the dancing, right? So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has filled, killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, the older brother sees what's going on, he hears what's going on, and he thinks, what are you doing, Dad? He's rehearsed a story about all this, and he's rehearsed a speech for the father. The father comes running out, just like he runs to the younger son. He runs outside the party and and goes to the older son. And you find out the bitterness that's there. You never even gave me a young goat. This animal that hardly has as much meat as the fattened calf, right? You never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. The older brother makes his case saying, look, I've been here the whole time playing the good son and this other son of yours. He can't even say his name. You ever been hurt by someone so much that it's hard to utter their name? It's easier to talk about them as your kid's mother or as your ex or... There's a power when we can't speak the name sometimes of people. And that's the kind of pain this brother seems to have felt. So there's these narratives and stories that are going on. The younger son thinks, I'm not worthy anymore. The father corrects that story. But the the older brother's believing a narrative too, and it's not correct either. The older brother's story is, I am your son because of all these years, I've worked hard and I've done what's right. So now I am worthy. You've heard this before, haven't you? Maybe you said these things. I did it all right. What have I done to deserve this? I was moral. I didn't do that and that and that like everybody else did. I suffered in this way for the cause. I've been the good child. I showed up at all the right things and I checked all the right boxes. Doesn't that gain me something? 
See, the older brother's story is, I'm your good son because I did everything out and I actually have worth now. I'm worthy in your eyes because I've done it right. His story is, I'm worthy because of all the good stuff I've done. And the father challenges his story in a different way. I love this line. And if you feel like maybe you're an older brother, maybe that's where you associate more, I hope you'll memorize this line and commit it to memory. Verses 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father says to him, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. You notice what the older son calls the dad, right? I didn't quite call him this, but he says, I've been slaving for you all these years. If he's been slaving, what does that make dad? It makes dad a slave master, doesn't it? If you read this story, that's not at all who this is. He's trying to tell him, look, all these years, you are always with me, and everything I have, it's, it's yours. Out of all the lines of dialogue that Jesus could put in the mouth of, of the father who signifies God in this story, the, the line Jesus chooses to put in here is, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Now, if you're building an understanding of who God is, whether you've been at this for a long time or you're new to this journey of faith, you're considering Christianity for the first time, I hope you'll build on this instead of on Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Because he got it wrong. If you're going to start anywhere, start with the words of Jesus as Jesus describes who the Father is. And his words have nothing to do with spiders being dangled over fire. His response is, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. And some of you need to hear this message this morning, and I wish I could just grab you by the lapel this morning, or I could just pat you on the back and say, I know you've been taught and you've been preached to, some of you, for years about a different picture of who God is. But what I want to put in front of you, what I want to set in front of you is this image that says, you don't have to work anymore. You don't have to check off any more boxes. There's nothing you can do that can cause God to love you more than he does right now through any kind of behavior. And unfortunately, there's, in your sight, there's nothing that others can do to make him love you them any less. Like God loves you as much as he ever has, and nothing you do can impact his love for you. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. If it sounds too good to be true, some of us think it probably is. No, this couldn't possibly be right. Some of us were saved through a manipulative and fearful picture that was painted for us of a God that's more like Zeus than the father described in this parable that Jesus gives us a picture of. Some of us grew up knowing that we liked Jesus. We just weren't sure we liked his dad. And that's why this picture that Jesus gives us in the story is so foreign to our ears. Because we all have a story that we believe about God. And there's a variety of factors that led us to the story that we believe. And each Son has a version of the picture of who the father is and, and who he is in relation to him. And in each of those stories, the father doesn't let them continue with the narrative or the story they've told. The father says, no, that's not true. And I'm going to tell you what the truth is. And he confronts that story with a different picture. And so with the younger son who says, I'm not worthy. He's try, trying to pitch that maybe he can be a servant. He says, no, no, no. You are my son. I've been waiting on you. He runs and wraps his arms around him. He says, you're worthy. You're here and we're going to celebrate because you were lost and you've been found. That's the narrative the father's trying to convince his son of. There's not just one son he's trying to convince another story of. He's trying to convince the older brother at the very same time. 
See, there's two stories in this parable that God wants to confront. And for some of us, it's, it's the younger brother that we need to hear this morning. Because maybe you've been down roads and you've wondered, can God actually love me? And Colin, you don't know where I've been and what I've done. I can't possibly be worthy. Holy is the furthest word that could describe my life. And if you come in with this picture that says, I guess the only thing I can hope is if God would give me a list of to-dos, then I can accomplish those and I could be received into this kingdom and maybe I could just be a servant in the kingdom of heaven. What I want you to hear this morning is, and what I want you to see this morning, is just this picture of the father running to you saying, you don't even get to finish your pitch. Because you're welcomed, you're received, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of God. There's nothing you can do. You are received because this is who you are. And, and Jesus has paid the debt for all those sins. There's nothing you've done that can ever keep you out of the kingdom of God. Nothing you're currently caught up in that God cannot forgive. There's nothing you will do that will preclude you or keep you out of this kingdom. All it takes is one step back and the father comes running. Some of you this morning, oh, I wish I could just convince you of this. I wish I could, I don't know what can be done, but I hope you will hear. I hope you will see this image and you'll get rid of some of the pictures in the past you've had of who God is. This is the clearest picture of who our God is. It's who Jesus, the son of God, pictures God to be. So this morning, maybe the day you want to run to Jesus, you want to take that step. And we'd love nothing more than to receive you, to, to baptize you in the name of Jesus. Take that step of repentance. Oh, we would celebrate with you just as These stories are about celebration here. But some of us need to hear a different message. In fact, maybe more of us need to hear a different message, a message to the older son. Now, if you've been paying attention to Luke chapter 15, then you realize the first two verses set the context for why Jesus tells this parable. Listen to this in in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So get the scene in your mind, right? Jesus is eating with people he shouldn't be eating with, according to Jewish custom or whatever, right? He just always kind of frustrates people because he goes and eats with them anyway. And these religious leaders come up and they're like, why would you hang out with these people? And Jesus doesn't respond to their question with some kind of response. He responds with stories. He tells the story of the sheep, tells the story of the coin, and then he tells this story. So uh, the people who are there, who are the, the, the sinners, right? The younger brothers, I guess you'd say in this story, were coming to hear from this rabbi, they're not the ones he actually tells these stories to. They get to overhear these stories told. So they get to hear this message. But these stories are, 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 are intended for the people who come and say, why are you eating with these people? So remember that context as Jesus says what he's saying. The older brother is actually the, the, the part of this story they need to hear. And so often I've heard this sermon preached and we never get to the older brother. And I love that story about the younger brother because we've all been on that road at some level. We've all confessed our sins, but, but some of us need to hear the next part of this because that's originally the intent of the story. These are the kind of stories that got Jesus killed because older brothers don't like hearing this kind of stuff. These stories were threatening to st- uh, stories to older brothers who believed a certain story about who God was then. They're still upset and will get preachers killed today if they tell it honestly. Some of you need to hear Jesus' words this morning more than ever. For many people, the fundamental way spirituality was explained to them was about a transaction. And transactionalism is the idea that God has done something for you, but you have to do all these different things in order for that thing that he did to be effective. And that often sounds something like this. God sent Jesus to die on the cross. So here's what you need to do. 
You have to believe in a certain way and you have to live in a certain way. And if you do this perfectly, then, then what Jesus did on the cross will be effective for you. And where that leaves a lot of us, and I've seen this happen by deathbeds, and I've heard stories from children of people who've been faithful all of their lives. And they visit them on the deathbed as they're about to pass. And they've, they've done everything they possibly could to follow Jesus. They've been in church every week. They've received the message of grace. But at the end of their lives, there's still this ringing question, this kind of gnawing anxiety that says, have we really done enough? Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I perfected enough? Have I done enough? Uh, Some of you grew up in churches that prompted this question with an entirely different set of questions. So you'd hear this often. A good sermon was, you know what? You're not praying enough. You know what? You're not giving enough. You know what? You're not volunteering enough. You know what? You're not reading your Bible enough. This is just kind of the ringing endorsement of what we're supposed to be as Christians. Some of you were brought up to think that the only way a sermon could be good is if you felt bad at the end of it. And underneath all of the God and Jesus talk is this system of transactionalism. You were bad, and if you would just do this, this, and this, then maybe things would turn out better in your life. And what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's telling a story about trust. It's actually what the story is about. Are you going to trust your story about who you are in God's eyes? Are you going to trust your story about who the Father is and what's been preached to you? Are you going to trust Jesus' words about who the Father is and who you are? Whose version of the story are you going to trust? And I would argue that the gospel is not an announcement about all the terrible things about you. It's not even about you at all. The the gospel is the announcement of what Jesus has done on the cross to change everything in our world, to bring the kingdom to bear in the now and in the present. And what that makes you is you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a child of God. The gospel is an announcement about a new identity. And to accept the gospel... It's to let go of the old stories we've been told about how bad God is and about how bad we are and to be reminded that we were, we were created as good. We were created in the image of God and we're to be reformed to that image. To repent of the ways that we're not in line with it, to receive the forgiveness and to step into the new life that Jesus offers, to step into our true identity. So the question this morning is, can you trust this? Can you trust Jesus' story about who the Father is more than the story that you may have come to believe? Can you trust the way he re-narrates the story of the older son or the younger son to say, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. And put a ring on him, kill a fattened calf because we're here to celebrate. The gospel is the extravagant, unexpected, counterintuitive, lavish announcement that everything you've ever been searching for is already here. Everything you've ever needed to be done has already been done for you. Because when Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. And that primal anxiety passed on in ancient times about a divine being who needs to be made happy or needs something to be accomplished on your end for everything to happen that needs to. No, no, no. It has already been taken care of in Jesus Christ. Can you trust that? Or are you going to trust the story that you've been told that you've come to believe?